Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming to today's Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute, and I will be your host today. Um, before we get started, I just want to briefly bring your attention to the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. It's our comprehensive guide to what we think policymakers should do on all variety of public policy issues from education to the environment to tax policy, foreign relations, trade, civil liberties, and so on. Um, if you're a Hill staffer and you don't have one of those, then you should probably see me or Brandon Arnold, who's standing by the back door, and uh, we'll be happy to get you a copy. So, higher education. Uh, people often talk about higher education as if it's a, a public good, something that would be underprovided in a free market because education is something that allegedly has uh, public goods characteristics, and uh, therefore, the argument goes, it needs to be subsidized. But um, when we're talking about whether or not government can improve upon markets, of course, we have to consider not only markets as they actually exist, but government as, they, as it actually exists. And uh, when you start getting into these sort of public choice questions, uh, the waters become a good bit more muddied. So the question remains whether or not the improvements can be made. Um, is government doing too much of certain things? Is it perhaps doing too little of others? Or is it some strange combination of both of those? And uh, what exactly are we trying to measure? There are a number of different dimensions of any sort of good that uh, people can talk about. You can talk about access. You can talk about quality. You can talk about educational attainment. And the list goes on. And those vary considerably from individual to individual. So uh, I'm hoping that we're going to get some answers to some of these questions and uh, many more. Uh, I'd like to introduce our first speaker. Andrew Gillen is the research director of the Center for College Affordability and Productivity, a nonprofit organization devoted to research on higher education issues. His recent work includes a tuition bubble, lessons from the housing bubble, and most recently, financial aid in theory and practice, why it is ineffective, and what can be done about it. It's this pretty little document that was out on the table, uh, one of three handouts we have available for you. Um, Dr. Gillen received a BBA from Ohio University and his PhD in economics from Florida State University. Dr. Gillen. spend a little bit of time on kind of the, the first question uh, that, that, that I'll just pose here, um, which is kind of the, the broad call for more college graduates. Um, and what's kind of surprising is that there's actually a really wide consensus among academics on theoretically the optimal number of college graduates that we should have. So for example, you can look at a kind of diverse books such as The Race Between Education and Technology uh, by Claudia Golden and Lawrence Katz. And then you can look at Real Education by Charles Murray, and they all contain kind of the same notion that the cost of colleges should be weighed against the benefits. Andrew, can yes. you speak a little more directly into the microphone? It's not sure. picking up as well. Is that right. better? <laughs> Everybody hear me? Okay, uh, so Paul Osterman, in a recent report for the Center for, or Center for American Progress, which is a liberal thing, thing, nicely summarized the basic idea as follows. Quote, the proper way to think about the question from a public policy perspective is to ask whether and by how much a college education enhances an individual's productivity on the job 
And then ask whether the cost of providing that college education is justified by the productivity. So basically, people across the ideological spectrum basically agree on the process for figuring out how many uh, kids should be going to college. Uh, where the, the, when the benefits of a college education outweigh the costs, they're all for more education. And when the costs outweigh the benefits, they're all against more education. Uh, so where the disagreements arise is in determining how big the benefits of college are. Uh, but since we don't do a very good job of measuring the, uh, the benefits of college, there's widespread disagreement on this, on this issue, and we don't really know whether too many or too few kids are going to school. Uh, so, kind of, so the question of how many kids uh, should be going to college is pretty unresolved, and there's room for reasonable differences of opinion. Uh, however, I found a few kind of tidbits helpful in thinking about the answer to that question. Uh, so first. There's been a consistent and gradual increase in the educational requirements throughout the post-war period. There's no compelling reason to think that this trend will suddenly stop, nor is there a compelling reason to think it will radically accelerate. Second, there doesn't seem to be a shortage of college graduates in general. Uh, the college wage premium hasn't moved much recently, and there's a good chance that much of the existing premium is due to differences in cognitive skills rather than college per se, college degrees per se. Moreover, the Department of Education analysis reveals that about 40% of young college graduates are in jobs that don't require a degree. Uh, kind of a third point, prior to its collapse, the Soviet Union had a quarter of all research scientists and half of all the world's engineers. This is particularly striking in light of calls for more college graduates that have no other rationale other than to increase human capital for the sake of increasing human capital. Fourth and lastly, while most of the fastest growing jobs do require a post-secondary education, those jobs typically employ few, relatively few people. Uh, these are professions such as computer software engineers, forensic science technicians, and mental health counselors. While all three of these professions are growing quickly and all require post-secondary education, even combined they will employ fewer than a million people in 2016. In fact, when one looks at the occupations with the largest absolute numerical growth, most of them don't require a college degree. Overall, the Labor Department estimates that about a decade from now, about a third of jobs will require post-secondary education, but they also report that 39% of 25 to 29-year-olds have an associate's degree or higher, and 30% have a bachelor's degree or higher. Another 19% have some college, but no degree. Uh, so kind of overall, it's far from clear to me that vast increases in, the, in college enrollment are called for at this time. A better focus, in my humble opinion, is to focus on increasing equality of opportunity, and all, as well as trying to increase the productivity of our existing higher education sector. I'd like to turn now to kind of the main focus of, of what I want to talk about, which is the, the effects of financial aid. And, and if you pick up a copy of this, either on your way in or on your way out, uh, it'll kind of outline the, the main points that I'm going to hit today. Uh, so as I see it, there's kind of two big problems with financial aid. Uh, the first is that the financial aid process, and particularly the FAFSA form, uh, is a mess. There's, it's way too long, way too confusing, um, and the end result is that many students who should be getting aid because they, they're, they come from uh, kind of disadvantaged backgrounds, uh, they don't even fill out the form. They don't get the aid that they're, that they, uh, that they're qualified for. And uh, the Department of Education estimates that about 1.5 million uh, such students did not fell out the form who would have gotten Pell Grants in 2004. 
Uh, so that's kind of uh, uh, the the first big problem that I see. And there, I don't think anybody is kind of pro status quo on the fast form. Everybody wants to change it, and yet it doesn't change. Uh, so I'm not a particular expert in trying to figure out how you guys can can do that. But hopefully, you guys and your and your bosses uh, can take care of that. Uh, the second big program. The second big problem that I see with financial aid is that financial aid programs often contribute to the explosion in, in costs and intuition. Uh, so currently, financial aid programs take costs per student as given, and they attempt to pay as much of that amount as possible. But costs are not given, and in fact, there's reason to believe that financial aid contributes to, the, to their continual escalation by providing fuel for the academic arms race. Unfortunately, one of the effects of this arms race is to increase the baseline cost of providing an education, which implies that more and more financial aid money is needed just to keep the financial burden on families from rising. This money is not always readily found, with the end result being that over time the government is providing more money, and in fact, if you look at the federal grants, the the total amount of federal grants has increased by 79% over the last 10 years. Uh, but at the same time, it's a, that, that increase in money is accomplishing less in terms of keeping the financial burden on families manageable. So the total loans taken out uh, for college have increased by 103% in the past 10 years, stretching students and families to their limit and beyond. State-based financial aid is even worse. Uh, so a, a number of studies have found that a, a $1,000 increase in state appropriations per student uh, will only end up lowering tuition by between $100 and $150. So this is not a, a very good uh, payoff. So, so we kind of need to think a little bit more uh, more carefully about, uh, about our theory behind financial aid. So the notion that financial aid programs can contribute to higher costs flows quite logically from the following three observations. First, any additional resources obtained by a school will be spent. Second, much of financial aid is structured in such a way that schools can obtain additional resources. And third, the spending of additional resources results in higher costs per student. From these observations, it follows that the current financial aid practices contribute to higher costs because they fuel the arms race. These higher costs are often accompanied by higher, tu- higher tuition, which reduces access and affordability, the exact opposite of what the program's intended. While the third point that I just mentioned is kind of mathematically obvious, the other two deserve a a bit more attention. So turning to the first one, what's what's the justification for the notion that resources, that any resources obtained will be spent? Really, this is is just acknowledging that schools are in this arms race. Uh, But that begs the question of why schools are engaged in an academic arms race. So essentially, the reason boils down to a lack of measures of output. Uh, We simply don't know with any precision what the value-added benefits of college are. For instance, William Fitzsimmons, Dean of Admissions at Harvard, recently said, and I quote, at Harvard, we get terrific students and we turn out terrific students later on. Is that due to Harvard or is that due to the students to begin with? Who knows? End quote. Because no one really knows what the benefits are, schools are forced to compete largely based on inputs, on the assumption that high-quality inputs will lead to better outputs. But high-quality inputs are costly, so schools have an insatiable thirst for more resources. Ronald Ehrenberg, in his book Tuition Rising, Why College Costs So Much, described it this way. For colleges, value is not measured by economic profits. Rather, maximizing value to these administrators means making their institutions the very best that they can be in almost every area of their activities. These administrators are like cookie monsters. They seek out all resources that they can get their hands on, and they devour them. 
So basically, schools are competing uh, for prestige or to move to the next highest level, however you want to think about this. And one of the surest ways to increase your prestige or move to that next highest level is to spend more money. If one school spends around $30,000 more per student than another, its peer assessment score, which is you can basically think of as its, its reputation score, is likely to be one point higher out of five in the, in the influential U.S. News and World Report college rankings, which is a significant advantage for, for those schools. Uh, combine this with the certainly reasonable notion that high-quality inputs will lead to high-quality outputs, and it is not surprising in the least that schools compete primarily on inputs. Moreover, much of the money is spent in ways that have a questionable impact on education. Since there is no bottom line in terms of output, schools have little guidance as to what is appropriate and, is what, and what is not, and quickly lose focus. To paraphrase William Easterly, if you try to do everything and focus on nothing, and if you obsess about money raised and spent rather than results achieved, haven't you already told us that the money will not be spent well? So we should ask ourselves, is it any wonder that when we measure schools based on inputs, which are costly, that costs continually rise? This process inevitably leads to an explosion in costs, and that often trickles down into an increases in tuition. So in my opinion, uh, a better financial aid system could follow the following three steps. First, figure out what college should cost. I used uh, a recent report from the Delta Cost Project, uh, and if you, if you look at their figures for education and related spending, you basically come out to uh, a figure of $10,000 for community colleges or two-year schools and 15000 for four-year schools. So this is kind of the median cost um, at, at kind of existing schools. Note that these are very generous estimates. You can certainly find schools that spend less, and of course there's schools that spend more, uh, but those are, those are, uh, those are the, the median estimates there. So the second step, figure out what the expected family contribution is. This is already being done uh, by using the FAFSA. Uh, the Department of Education knows how to do this. As noted earlier, there are huge problems with the FAFSA, but those, hopefully those can be, uh, those can be fixed, um, and that should be done. Uh, kind of a, a caveat that I want to add here is that you, the Department of Education should not share that information with the schools. Right now, the, the Department of Education shares intimate financial details on students and their families with the schools, which makes it very easy for schools to kind of figure out what uh, students are, are the kind of the maximum students are, are able to pay. And you've always seen private schools kind of charging what the market will bear, but you're seeing that more and more even at public schools, uh, which is uh, a concerning development from the from students and families' perspective. And the third, use programs like the Pell Grant program and means-tested loans to fill any gap. Uh, between what it should cost to educate a student and what their expected family contribution is. Uh, so in other words, you could get rid of pretty much everything financial aid related except for the Pell and a modified student loan program, and you'd have a better system. Okay, so to sum up, because I think I'm probably already over, um, fundamentally there are unintended consequences from the current financial aid system because from the perspective of competing schools, it does not make sense to take their costs, subtract the state subsidy per student, and charge the remainder in tuition. Schools have an incentive to spend as much as possible because spending is useful in building a better school, or at least what appears to be a better school. In other settings, this impulse would be, would be controlled to justify the cost on some sort of cost-benefit grounds. But in higher education, there are few good measures of outcomes. And by what I mean by student outcomes is student learning and its impact in a kind of a value-added sense. And those that do exist are not widely used. This renders cost-benefit analysis exceedingly difficult, if not impossible. As a result, anything that has a plausible claim to being beneficial will be attempted if money is available. Thus, schools have an insatiable need for more money. 
Financial aid can be expected under certain circumstances to lead to an increase in cost for students because it adds fuel to this fire. Specifically, whenever aid is made available to students who are already paying existing costs at their school, it will increase their ability to pay, which is noted by colleges, who typically increase the price they charge these students as a result. The, the revenue is spent to improve the school, with the consequence that cost for student increase and, of course, tuition is higher as well. This problem can be avoided if financial aid is reformed to be better targeted. And with that, I'll kind of stop and save anything more for the, for the Q&A. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Um, and uh, as Dr. Gillen alluded to, we will have a discussion period after Neil's comments, so uh, make sure to prepare some hard-hitting questions for us. Um, our second speaker today is Neil McCluskey. He's the Associate Director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. Prior to arriving at Cato, McCluskey served in the U.S. Army, taught English in high school, and uh, was a freelance reporter covering municipal government and education policy issues in suburban New Jersey. More recently, he was a policy analyst at Cato's Center for Education <laughs> Reform. Um, is that right? Or is that something else? It's actually a place called the Center for Education Reform. Oh, my apologies. That's the, the name of the organization. Um, his writings have been published in a variety of newspapers, and he is a frequent commentator on a variety of television and radio programs. In addition to his written work, McCluskey has appeared on C-SPAN, CNN, the Fox News Channel, and numerous radio programs. Uh, McCluskey is the author of the book Feds in the Classroom, How Big Government Corrupts, Cripples, and Compromises American Education. And that's this book right here. It's uh, an extraordinarily good history of history uh, of education in the United States. And then he goes on and talks about all the un unintended consequences and um, kind of perverse results and incentives that come about. So, Mr. McCluskey. Uh, first of all, I want to thank everyone for coming today, and especially uh, Andrew for joining us. And it's easy to get the Center for Education blank confused because Cato has a Center for Educational Freedom. I was at the Center for Education Reform for that. There's a Center on Education Policy. You can have Center Education, other word, and you cover just about half of the groups in Washington, D.C. Um, Andrew, I think, did a terrific job of spelling out all the perverse problems that come with student aid, how it might actually make college more expensive, um, and, and largely because it encourages colleges and universities to basically buy things uh, they, they otherwise wouldn't because it's the inputs that matter, not really the outputs. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, but I'm not going to focus on it because he, he does such a comprehensive job in his report and, and did so in his talk. Uh, I should say, though, that this student aid and the perverse incentives that go with it and the perverse outcomes that go with it are reason enough that we shouldn't be increasing student aid across the board, certainly, at the federal level, but should be decreasing it and, and targeting it better if we were to keep it at all. Uh, but I want to go beyond the price inflation question, which, again, is central, um, and look at some of the other costs and, and, and significant problems that are caused when you have forced third-party payment of higher education. Um, I want to start, though, by looking at some of just the, the policy proposals that President Obama ha has floated uh, and look at them specifically, uh, talk a little bit about each one, and then look at all these additional costs when I get to the last one. Uh, I want to start by looking at the, the proposal to make all federal lending 
direct lending and eliminating the guaranteed lending program. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about making Pell an entitlement um, and setting the increase of Pell at the rate of inflation plus one each year. Uh, and then I want to, to look especially at this idea, which uh, President Obama put out in his address to Congress in February, that everybody should pursue at least one additional year of education beyond post-secondary education. Um, let's start with the direct lending versus uh, guaranteed lending question. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, although it is sort of the big debate, and it's typically the big debate when you talk about higher education, because a lot of people have something at stake, especially lenders, who under the current program or the guaranteed lending program get uh, guaranteed business, and they get pretty big subsidies. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, though, because both programs had the same inflationary effect, first and foremost. So no matter how you deliver it, you're still delivering third-party payment, third-party aid that makes consumers insensitive to costs and lets colleges spend on all sorts of things that they don't need and that don't have direct educational benefits. Um, and so that's a problem no matter which way we go on, on which program we use for student loans. Um, I think it's also not an issue that I want to spend a lot of time on because it appears, at least based on budget resolution, um, that the guaranteed lending program will be spared. It won't be eliminated. Uh, of course, that's the budget resolution. You actually have to pass the budget. And so this will be revisited, but it appears to me, at least politically, that, that We'll probably still continue to have these two programs. Uh, I should say that I do think direct lending will save a little money because you're not sending subsidies to lenders. Uh, but again, this is really a sideshow in what's, what's definitely the much bigger point, which is that both programs are inflationary and lead to lots of other unintended consequences. Um, and so I'm not going to spend time on either, saying whether or not direct or guaranteed lending is better because both are fundamentally flawed. Um, I think a, a bigger issue is making Pell a mandatory, an entitlement, mandatory spending as opposed to something that's voted on every year. Uh, and it's important to note not just for Pell, but for all student aid, both, or student aid and aid that goes to colleges, that higher education and education generally does not occur in a vacuum. People consume higher education in accordance with their priorities in life. So it might be more important me, for me to have uh, to improve my house. It might be more important for me to improve the food that I eat, to get better clothes, to get a new car. All sorts of things that I prioritize, and included in that is education. Um, entitlements, uh, I, let me back up a little. Any government student aid, an aid to, to colleges and universities, distorts the priorities of individuals by saying, well, here's the cost of education, and we're going to make you insensitive to it, so that we're going to encourage you maybe to put higher education higher in your list of priorities than it otherwise would be. Well, when you make Pell an entitlement, you increase those distortions, because at the very least, even though all government aid is distorting, without Pell as an entitlement, it has to be put in the priorities of the things that the nation has to look at. Every year, Congress has to vote on whether or not they're going to prioritize Pell, or will there be more money that goes to defense, or more money to health care, or do we have bigger tax breaks for people? Once something becomes an entitlement, it can no longer be paced in priorities like that. It is getting guaranteed funding, and that is a, a huge problem. And of course, we know what happens to entitlements as they become politically untouchable. 
no matter how out of control they get. And that is a very important point to consider when we think about do we make Pell mandatory spending. I should say that, and, and I think Andrew will have a slightly different take on this probably, but there is evidence that suggests that Pell, even though it's targeted toward truly low-income people or much lower income than most loans are targeted at, um, does have an inflationary effect, at least single and stone and for whom the Pell, or for whom the Pell tolls, um, found that uh, Pell does have an inflationary effect at least at the highest caliber private schools. And we can certainly say that if you set Pell at an increasingly higher level, that is a floor beneath which or a college can always or will never charge beneath, a college will never charge beneath Pell because everybody can pay that. That's a floor that they, everybody is insensitive to paying that. Um, and that's very dangerous to set a floor like that and to guarantee that that floor continues to rise at a rate faster than inflation, guaranteeing that colleges can continue to increase tuition at rates that exceed inflation. So that's important to keep in mind about Pell. And I think the most important thing is that there's no moral justification for providing free money to somebody so that first and foremost they can increase their earning potential over time. In other words, you say, I'm going to take money from a taxpayer who may not have gone to college and give it to someone else so that they can earn that premium, which some people say is a million dollars, I've seen $900,000, I've seen low as $350,000, how much more you'll earn over your lifetime if you go to college and if you don't. Regardless where that number is, you cannot justify morally taking money from someone else, giving it to another person so they can earn more and say that person doesn't have to return that money to the people from whence it came. So at the very, the most I could say you could justify is government guaranteeing a loan because poor people typically don't have collateral. So that person can get a loan to get that additional earning, but then they have to pay it back to the taxpayer, who is so often forgotten when we talk about student aid. Um, but I think that the area that really leads into looking at all the, the, the fat that is in higher education, all the waste that's in higher education, is when President Obama said that we should um, have people at least get one additional year of training beyond high school. Uh, and the problem with that is it's essentially a consume more education policy. What we're saying is that the end result we want is people having more years in something called education, and that our target is not specific skills, specific learning, preparing people for specific things. Our measure will be how much time do people spend in higher education. And the fact of the matter is that's what we've been doing for years because it's easy politically to say, well, look, under my watch, we've had people consume 14 years of education. We have more people with associate's degrees or certificates or bachelor's degrees. Um, but we don't say they learned certain skills that are more important. Uh, we can't say that, that, as Andrew mentioned, that we have any measure of what's learned in college. We have inputs. And the same thing applies to how long people spend in school. We can say how long they're there, but we really don't have a way of, sending what, of, of indicating what they've learned. And encouraging people to do this has really led to a lot of waste. And let me just give you some statistics that illustrate how many people we send to college already, or that go to college, that we encourage to go to college with student aid, with subsidies to schools, that maybe shouldn't be there. The six-year graduation rate right now is only 58%. So only a little over half of people who go to college for a four-year program complete it within six years. 
The percentage of first-year students requiring remedial classes, either remedial math, or remedial reading, or both, the percentage of new students who require that is about 33 percent. One out of every three students requires remedial college, or remedial training in order to prepared to do college work. And most of those people who need remedial training won't graduate. So we are encouraging people to consume education that they're either not prepared for or really aren't interested in by subsidizing it and having our leaders tell them everybody has to go to college because that's the ticket to the middle class and to the American dream. And we send people who simply aren't prepared, and we waste often their time and other people's and their money. Uh, if we look at indicators of what a bachelor's degree or postgraduate degree means, or, or degree after bachelor's means, you can look at literacy rates. Um, between 1992 and 2003, literacy levels for Americans whose, whose final degree was a bachelor's degree or who got more education than that, literacy levels dropped in those 11 years, both whether you're looking at document literacy, prose literacy, or numeracy. So that degree means less and less. And that's really important because presumably we send people to get education for what they're learning, not just to get a piece of paper. But it's that piece of paper that's really become important, and the amount of learning it signifies has decreased. Uh, as Andrew talked about, there's good statistics that suggest we have more bachelor's degree holders than we need. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that in 2006, the percentage of all jobs requiring a bachelor's degree was 25 percent. Yet, as of March 2007, 29 percent of Americans aged 25 and older had a bachelor's degree. So we have more people with bachelor's degrees than the labor market requires. But, of course, we don't know what are those bachelor's degrees in. So we have shortages in math, science, things like that, uh, because the main concern isn't what people are learning. It's that they get the degree. It's that they go to college. So we have lots of people who are English majors, like myself, and there's not that much demand for English majors. Um, anecdotally, I wrote a, um, an op-ed that was in the Baltimore Sun a few months ago when, when, you know, when Maryland was saying they need to spend more money subsidizing their public colleges and universities. And something called the College Town Network, the president of the College Town Network, wrote a letter to the editor of the Sun saying, well, obviously this guy from Cato hadn't read our report talking about all the benefits that accrue to the city of Baltimore because of the colleges and universities that are there, which employ people, you know, which then trickles out to, you know, students go to restaurants and all, all these sorts of things. And so I, I looked at this report because I didn't like to be ignorant of these things. And there was a very interesting chart that they produced which showed the demand for about 10 different occupations in the state of Maryland, and then how many graduates left just Baltimore colleges and universities with degrees in those areas. And you saw some places where just the colleges and universities in Baltimore didn't produce enough graduates to meet the total employment requirement for Maryland, but there were several job areas where they produced far more graduates than the entire state of Maryland needed. And the biggest of these was social workers. They produced more than twice as many social workers in Baltimore as the entire state of Maryland needed. So you can see that there is a disconnect between what the colleges and universities are producing and what the labor market requires. But that's not really our focus, at least politically. The focus is getting as many people to college as possible. Um, and then finally, uh, you know, the easiest and the most fun way to demonstrate the waste that's in higher education is you look at all the extravagances that colleges and universities have. So 
You have the hot tubs, the climbing walls, the gourmet dining facilities, deluxe dorms. Uh, but I always like to illustrate it with really my favorite example, and this is probably a little cherry picking, but I don't care because it's so egregious. Um, and it's the University of Missouri's Tiger Grotto. And I just want to read the, the description right from the University of Missouri's website of the Tiger Grotto to give you an idea of at least the direction we're heading in in some places. It says, ever needed a beach getaway in the middle of finals week? The Mizzou Aquatic Center's new purely recreational facility, Tiger Grotto, offers just that right here on Mizzou's campus. Amidst palm trees and other tropical flora, the sound of waterfalls and fountains give Tiger Grotto an atmosphere of complete serenity. There's a world of activity at Tiger Grotto. Its lazy river allows you to float along without any effort while you watch Zoo TV on the big screen. Additionally, the new 101-degree spa hot tub is big enough to hold you and more than 20 of your friends. In the vortex, you can swim against the current or let it simply spin you around. And don't forget, sauna and steam rooms are also available to make your tropical experience as authentic as possible. Now, I want you all, just for a moment, to close your eyes, release the stress of the day, and just imagine you're at the Tiger Grotto. Just close your eyes. Pretty serene stuff, but now let's get back to reality. Ultimately, the problem with subsidies to students and to schools is that you're encouraging people to pursue an education that they very possibly wouldn't. So they might, instead of pursuing a four-year degree, if they were doing it on their own, would pursue a two-year degree because that's what they really need. Or you're encouraging them to get a two-year degree instead of certificate because that's what they really need. Or you send them to college and they say, well, I could get this four-year degree in three years, but it, you know, I really like to have all this time in the Tiger Grotto or some other equivalent thereof. Um, and that is waste. And it's wasteful because the people who are consuming it aren't actually paying the cost for it. Much of that cost is paid for by someone else. So why not demand things that you otherwise wouldn't? And I think the, the bigger societal and economic problem is that when you subsidize a college or a student, you are taking money from taxpayers, individuals, who know their problems and needs better than anybody on Capitol Hill or in the State House knows it. You're taking it from them, and you're giving it to people who will use it less efficiently because it's not their money. And that leads to tremendous economic inefficiency, taking it from a more efficient use to a less efficient use. And, and Andrew's boss, Dr. Richard Vetter, has done a study on this where he essentially isolated lots of variables or, or held constant lots of variables to isolate the effect of spending on colleges and universities, public spending on colleges and universities and states, and found that the more states spend on higher education, the lower their rate of economic growth. And that makes sense, again, because what you're doing is you're taking money from something that would be a more efficient use and ultimately sending it to something that's a less efficient use. And that's not of benefit to anybody. Uh, and with that, I'll conclude, and happy to answer your questions.